This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 203, Poverty. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Poverty is the rule, not the exception. We have become prosperous enough in modern-day America that poor people write Yelp reviews on their smartphones about how expensive their sushi was. Actual poor people do exist, though. They always have and always will. This week, we will discuss Jesus' apparent indifference to poverty, the young man's trip from hopelessness to Congress, the origin story of Hal Hammond's famous tightwad, and how my wife stopped the Federal Reserve from invading our board game table. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Is there one of Jesus' sayings that makes you wish he'd just left well enough alone? Maybe it's a doctrinal thing, like what he said about the permanence of marriage in Matthew 19. Maybe it's a behavioral thing, like turning the other cheek in Matthew 5.39. For me, it's a cultural thing, specifically his social commentary in John 12, verses 1 through 8. You remember the story. He's having dinner in Bethany. Matthew 26 says it was the house of Simon the leper. And Lazarus' sister, Mary, pours some extremely expensive perfume all over Jesus' feet. On the surface, at least, it seems to be everything that Jesus opposed. He grabs as much attention for himself as possible, essentially making himself the center of the universe. And when a kinder, more practical use for the ointment is suggested by Judas, the betrayer of all people, that it could be sold for money to be given to the needy, Jesus dismisses the notion. And that's the kicker for me. Verse 8, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Why did he have to say that? Didn't he realize how that would play with the audience even 2000 years later? For that matter, is it even consistent with his teachings, love thy neighbor and all that? Here are my thoughts. Firstly, he was stating a truism. There have always been poor people. There always will be poor people. We've seen such an incredible elevation of the lower classes in my lifetime, both in America and worldwide, that we may have convinced ourselves that poverty is a fixable problem. It isn't. Simply transferring wealth from high to low will not result in some sort of utopian, egalitarian society where everyone is on the same economic footing. I can make a logical or historical case for that point, but that's beyond the scope of this podcast. Besides, I don't have to. Jesus said it's true, and that's good enough for me. If he's your Lord and Savior, it ought to be good enough for you also. That doesn't mean we should quit trying to help those who are in need. But it does mean we should not get so distracted by the cause of the poor that we neglect to attend to Jesus. And that brings me to the second point. By marginalizing the issue of poverty, Jesus was defining the nature of his kingdom, or at least defining part of what it was not. Despite what a lot of preachers are telling you these days, Jesus did not die on the cross so the world would be a kinder, gentler, fairer place to live in. He certainly didn't die to put money in your bank account. I believe in a God who can part the Red Sea, who lifts up empires and brings empires down in fact, spoke the entire world into existence. That is a God who can fix any problem he sets his mind to. If he can level mountains, certainly he can level economic classes. The fact that he does not, and in fact never has, is all you need to know to prove that he has his attentions set elsewhere. It is no surprise, then, that his son comes into the world and does absolutely nothing to fix the world's problems. After all, why stop poverty? He didn't fix disease either, at least not on a macro scale. He didn't fix inefficient and cruel governmental systems. 
He didn't encourage good causes such as literacy, nutrition, and environmental responsibility, although that hasn't stopped various ones over the centuries to try to do so in his name. What he did do, and this has ripple effects with regard to all these issues, including poverty, is urge us to become as gentle and lowly in heart as he was. When we have the heart of Jesus, we live every day open to opportunities to share Jesus' light with our neighbors. That means prioritizing others' needs, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verse 4. But far more importantly than any specific application, it means we must truly devote ourselves to the service we offer to Jesus himself, and that we encourage others to do the same. There will be times when doing God's work in God's way will be perceived as cruel or unkind. But we'll answer to God, not our neighbors, for our attitude of heart. Balancing obligations to God, myself, and my needy neighbors is something I've spent half a century trying to work out, and I'm not there yet. So I'm certainly not going to hand you a neat and tidy solution in six minutes. All I can say is, give your heart to God first, and your neighbors second. The two great commands, as Jesus himself states in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. If you do your best at those two objectives, and pray for wisdom in so doing, you won't go too far wrong. This is what I've been reading. Reading Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, who has since become a U.S. congressman, was a real experience for me last year. It's his own story, essentially. The story of a boy reared in a dysfunctional environment with roots in the impoverished culture of rural Kentucky and Ohio. He is quite candid about his family history, which is steeped in violence, addiction, and a seemingly endless cycle of despair. Children in his neighborhood were going to be just like their parents. It was a given. Working to escape poverty was seen as a slight to the rest of the family. Too big for your britches, is the phrase they would use. Uppity youngins would learn the truth in time. Success only came to two sorts of people. Those who were born into it, and those who were so unbelievably gifted that they couldn't help but prosper. Your choice doesn't matter. That's the notion Vance says he would most like to change in the minds of the people he grew up among. Enlisting in the Marines drove that notion from his mind, Vance says. He recalls a three-mile run he completed, props to him right there, in a time that he was more than satisfied with, more props. His drill instructor was not nearly as impressed. He forced Vance, who was already exhausted, or so he thought, to run sprints over and over again until he thought he would pass out. That's how you should feel at the end of every run, the instructor yelled. The message clearly got through. Giving the degree of effort you are prepared to give, meeting with unsatisfactory results, and then whining about how unfair the world is, that's laziness, he says, pure and simple. You can change your life. You just don't want to badly enough. And blaming the government is no better than blaming your parents. Vance, who claims to be a conservative and who won his congressional race on the Republican ticket, has harsh words for people of all political stripes who have no solutions other than slinging filth at the opposition. When we think of the problem as being outside ourselves and bigger than ourselves, despair is the natural result. And despair in the heart is a far greater problem than legislators in Washington. He cites a Pew Research study that says working-class white people are the most pessimistic group in America. Only 44% think their children will be better off than they are. And a full 42% think they are actually worse off than their own parents, by far the largest percentage in the survey. Vance's own father, after hearing his son had been accepted to Yale Law School, 
asked whether he had disguised himself as a liberal or a person of color. That kind of cynicism feeds itself. It destroys hope. It has laid waste to entire generations in some parts. And if nothing is done, it will happen again. The solution to the poverty cycle is the same as the answer to the obesity cycle, the illiteracy cycle, and especially the sin cycle. It's ridiculously simple. Take responsibility for your own choices. Do not be defined by your surroundings and your upbringing. You can escape it. People do it every day. But you won't do it by drinking beer on the couch, watching Netflix and Fox News, whining about how awful your life is. You will do it, and forgive me if this seems overly harsh, by admitting that the biggest problem you face, indeed in the end, the only problem you face, is yourself. Your laziness, your stubbornness, your bitterness, your anger. A government program won't fix that. A permanent home in your parents' garage won't fix that. Another CBD gummy certainly won't fix that. In fact, so-called solutions like that will almost certainly make the problem worse instead of better. Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If he had meant sit on your hands, wait for solutions to fall out of the sky, and whine about it until they do, he would have said that instead. Fixing your life is hard. It's work. And there are always excuses to linger in bad habits. Don't be satisfied with that. Lean on the Lord. Lean on your family. Lean on your brethren. But don't stop at that. Work. Work like your life and your soul depend on it. Because I have news for you. They do. This is what I've been hearing. My mother was born on August 3rd, 1931. Please don't tell her I told you that. They think it was in Bixby, Oklahoma, but actually no one's absolutely sure. Her family moved around a lot. She, her parents, and her eight siblings made their living mostly by sharecropping. Imagine the Grapes of Wrath without the trip to California. That was my mother's family. Nobody had any money. And if somehow they managed to come by a little, it certainly didn't go to waste. We call it the Great Depression now, and the experience of living through it shaped mom's adulthood, and ultimately her manner of rearing children, my dad's too. Growing up, our refrigerator was packed with old margarine tubs. A bite of green beans in this one, a piece of meatloaf in that one. Nothing went to waste, including the tubs. My mother's favorite piece of chicken is the back. Those of you who have never seen a chicken that didn't come from a bucket probably don't even know that is a piece of chicken. But when you butcher your own, you find extra meat in all sorts of places. I've become quite partial to the kidneys myself. If you didn't know chickens had kidneys, invite me over the next time you're having an actual chicken dinner. I'll show them to you. I'm by no means the recycler my parents are. And when I say recycler, I mean washing off pieces of aluminum foil and saving them for another project. Not dumping plastic bottles into a trash can and hoping the powers that be turn them into something useful. But I have enough respect for the process to cringe when I see millennials who have never missed a meal laughing at people like my parents for their frugal ways. Some multimillionaires still save pennies. The millennials in question ridicule that. It never seems to occur to them that saving pennies likely had a great deal to do with how they became multimillionaires. The fact is, being wasteful is always a bad thing, whether you can afford to do it or not. God doesn't give us a barn full of goodies so we can build bigger barns. He gives so we can meet our own needs, find opportunities to address the needs of others, and glorify Him in all of it.
This process is going to involve a bit of a balancing act, a couple of them in fact. One involves the line between savor and hoarder. The other involves the line between celebration and indulgence. Let's take the first one first, since it's probably a bit more obvious. Saving for a rainy day is responsible stewardship. The ant is given to us as an example in Proverbs 6.6, not only of industry, but also of preparing for leaner times. The term provide in 1 Timothy 5.8 is a combination of Latin roots, pro meaning forward, and vide meaning vision. Therefore, a projected video image is a picture that is thrown forward onto a screen. At least that's the way they did it way back in the 20th century, or even today in movie theaters, if anyone's still going to the movies these days. Anyway, to provide necessarily looks to future needs, not just present ones. The one who chooses not to do so for his family is worse than an infidel, Paul asserts. But material possessions are saved so that they can be used, if not by us today or tomorrow, at least by someone at some time. Stacking our homes with possessions because we're afraid of letting go of them is a sign of all sorts of evil thoughts, fear, anxiety, doubt, and many other troubles that tie us down to earthly problems instead of freeing us up to store up treasure in heaven. Balancing celebration and indulgence is trickier. We have no mandate to divest ourselves of all worldly goods, as the rich young ruler was told to do in Matthew 18.21. Rich ones are to be ready to share with the poor, as Paul states in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, but not to the point of becoming poor themselves. The preacher urges us in Ecclesiastes 5.19 to rejoice in the proceeds of our labor, not to live in guilt for having more than someone else. But at some point, it becomes callous and unloving to look at the sufferings of others and refuse to come to their aid. If you know someone who can make a hard and fast application of this principle, please give me his or her contact info. I would love to learn at their feet. For now, all I can do is point to the axiom given to us by Jesus himself in Luke 6.30. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. That statement is moderated by other things said about physical possessions and charity and other passages, I hasten to say. But at the very least, generosity of heart and wallet should be the rule rather than the exception. When we see an increase in our wealth as only an opportunity to favor ourselves even more, we show that we do not really take Jesus at his word, as Paul quotes him in Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. We owe him and ourselves better than that. This is what I've been playing. Playing games with a specific set of companions places restrictions on the games I'm likely to purchase, and that is a very good thing. We only have so much closet space, after all. And I just gave you a warning about indulgence. I'd hate to be hoisted on my own petard. More specifically, I only buy games that my wife thinks she will like. After all, she's with me at the table close to 100% of the time. Also, I rarely buy games that do not play well with only two players. Close to 75% of the time, she's the only person with me at the table. That's two reasons more than I need to avoid buying QE. And it's a real shame, because I think QE looks amazing. And yet I'll almost certainly never play it. Tracy is absolutely and actively uninterested in it. And if somehow I were to guilt or bribe her into playing, I'd never get Kylie to join in. And the game requires at least three players, so no QE for me. QE is an acronym for quantitative easing, which itself is an economics term referring to the policy of pouring more money into the economy 
so as to keep interest rates low and thereby encourage borrowing and spending, create jobs, and get politicians reelected. It has been the rule of thumb in American fiscal policy more or less since the Reagan years. One might argue it was an inevitable result of President Nixon taking us off the gold standard in the first place. By now, you've probably figured out why Tracy is not interested in this game. At any rate, QE the game involves you playing the part of a central bank. You have the opportunity to bid on various companies to try to save them from bankruptcy. And since you are the one printing the money, you can bid whatever you want. I'll repeat that. Whatever you want. Bail out the most companies and you win the game. But if you are the player who printed more money than anyone else, you lose all your points and you finish last. Everyone who plays this game thinks it's an absolute riot. How many times are you ever going to get a chance to use the word septillion in your life, let alone in reference to dollars? By the way, a septillion is a million times a trillion times another trillion. 21 zeros in all, in case you're interested. So our national debt won't reach a septillion until 2027 at the earliest. But I digress. It's my personal conviction that quantitative easing is a lot like cocaine. A terrific half hour, but a terrible life plan. And that's as political as I'm going to get this week. But wouldn't it be nice if complex problems like poverty could be wiped out completely with a stroke of a pen? Go in peace, be warmed and filled, to use the expression from James 2.16. But simply wishing for a solution is an exercise in self-aggrandizement. We get the credit for loving our neighbor, yet we don't have to do anything of substance to actually help him. And getting the government to do it for us isn't much better. Sorry about that. That is as political as I'm going to get this week. Dealing with the underprivileged is messy. A major metropolitan area just to the south of us is currently wrestling with it. The citizens voted to criminalize homelessness, which for political and legal reasons they call public camping. What a world we're living in. They don't want the guilt that comes with seeing someone in need, but they don't want to give them any money either. So they just ask the police to round them up. And then they also voted to cut funding for the police, which will keep them from enforcing the public camping ban, as well as every other law in the books. And that, for real, absolutely, is as political as I'm going to get this week. Thank you for your patience. Anyway, whether the cultural issue is poverty or anything else, make a practice of looking askance at painless solutions and the scoundrels who are peddling them. Life is a pain literally and figuratively. We chose this path way back in the Garden of Eden. And lest Adam and Eve be seen to shoulder the entire blame, everyone who has sinned has basically relived the Garden story all over again. God wanted to give us a paradise. We chose earth instead. So here we are. And for the time being, at least, here we stay. Let's make the best of a bad situation. But while we do... Let's remember that the heaven that eludes us here on earth is promised to us in eternity. If we choose Jesus and persist in Jesus, as Peter urges in 2 Peter 1 verses 5 through 11, if we spend this life building on our faith with moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. There will be no poverty in heaven. Of that, you can be sure. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. 
comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.